Well, good morning. I'm so excited about this um, new stretch of this sermon um, series that we're in now. As you know, we're walking through the, the um, book of Matthew, and this morning we are beginning um, by looking at the sermon on the mount. And so I'm looking forward to us over the next several weeks walking through this together. As you know, our sermon series is entitled Follow Me. And Jesus said in, in Matthew 4:19, we read, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of me. Follow Amen. Follow me is a phrase that Jesus frequently used when he called his disciples during his earthly ministry. Jesus made a promise to this band of misfits that were underqualified for such an important role that he would qualify them for the role that lied ahead of them. These men, as we looked at last week, were probably a little rough around the edges. I think every one of us in this room would admit that the day that Jesus Christ called us and saved us, we were a little rough around the edges, weren't we? We were probably a, a, a little bit um, a, a part of what you would consider the band of misfits ourselves. And Jesus took these underqualified men and he qualified them and they changed the world. As you know, Jesus called 12 men to follow after him. 11 of those would complete the journey. One of those would turn Jesus over to die a criminal's death by crucifixion. 10 of those would go on to die a martyr's death. And one of those men, John, would be the only one that did not die a martyr's death. Jesus said, follow me, and he made this promise for those early disciples that he would make them into fishers of men. Over the next several weeks, we're going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount together. The Sermon on the Mount is actually a, a um, encompasses three chapters, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. And this is kind of what I want all of us to be aware of this morning as we walk through this sermon together. Our message point is this. The Sermon on the Mount is the most important sermon ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount is the most important sermon ever preached. And you may be saying, well, what about um, the, the first sermon that Peter preached after the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost? On that day, sermon, um, the sermon Peter preached was a very powerful message. We know at the end of it, 3,000 people turned their lives over to Jesus Christ. We know that Peter, whenever he, or when Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin, before the le- religious leaders, he preached a pretty powerful sermon as well. Paul, as we read throughout the, the epistles that, that he wrote, that he frequently preached powerful messages. Many powerful sermons have been preached since the founding of the first church, but none of those sermons compare to this sermon. This sermon teaches us how we are to live our lives, and I'm looking forward to us unpacking this together. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin reading in verse one, but by way of review, if you recall from our message last week, following the imprisonment of John, Jesus would begin his earthly ministry. And if you recall, Jesus will leave the small Jewish community of Nazareth, and he would go and live in the Galilee region, uh, uh, an area that, that made, was made up of about 2 million people. And he would live in a small 
fishing village just off of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. Here, Jesus would begin his preaching ministry. Here, he would call his first disciples. Here, he would preach. Here, he would heal. And here, he would gain a great following. In fact, as a result of Jesus' early ministry, Scripture says that his fame spread throughout the region. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, we read, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and far beyond the Jordan. This morning, we will be introducing the Sermon on the Mount. This morning is really a setup for what is to come over the next several weeks. So begin reading with me this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 through 12, this is what we read. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oswald Chamber, many of you have read his, his um, devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. He said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. St. Augustine was said to have described the Sermon on the Mount as a perfect standard of living for the Christian life. Non-believers like Gandhi um, were, were greatly impressed and impacted by the message of the Sermon on the Mount. There was a, they, a Russian um, co- a part of the Communist Party. He was the secretary of the Communist Party by the name of Nikita Khrushchev. He actually said this while visiting the United States once. He said, I'll tell you what the difference between Christians and me is. And that is, if you slap me on the face, I'll hit you so hard your head will spin off. Obviously, he knew about the Sermon on the Mount, but he wasn't a very big fan of the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people know of the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people know the principles found within the Sermon on the Mount, but there's a lot of people that are not real big fans of the Sermon on the Mount. They are not fans because it calls them to a standard of living that they are not willing to, to, to surrender their lives for. By way of setup, let me make a few introductory statements as it pertains to the Sermon on the Mount and specifically the Beatitudes. The first one is this. Um, let's look at the insights, okay? Let's look at the insights this morning. Brian Bill makes a few observations. says that the Beatitudes can only be lived out by Christians. The Beatitudes can only be lived out by Christians. We read that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And what happened? His disciples came to him. 
you have really two different groups of people that heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. There were the disciples, the called out ones, the ones that Jesus said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then there was another group. And this second group would be what we would consider to be admirers of Jesus. They were fans of Jesus. This sermon was intended for his disciples. It was not intended for the crowds. Now, you may ask yourself, well, why was it not intended for the crowds? Because the crowds were not yet believers. They were merely fans of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were astonished by his ministry. They were astonished by his preaching ministry because he preached with such authority. They were astonished by his healing ministry because they had never before seen anyone during their lifetime do the things that Jesus Christ did. And so they were fans of his. And so you may ask yourself, well, there's some principles within the Sermon on the Mount that applies to the crowds as well as the disciples. And that's true. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see that, that we are instructed to love our neighbors. Non-believers obviously can love their neighbors. They can love their enemies as well. You know, Jesus tells us to go the extra mile. Well, a lot of um, unbelievers are a lot more um, servant-minded than even believers are. You know, Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount that we're to be generous. Um, generosity extends to both the believer and the unbeliever, or it or it could. We're told not to hold grudges and not to become angry. So there's some principles within the Sermon on the Mount that, that even people like Gandhi agreed were good. But this message was not preached um, as, a, as a goodwill gesture message. It was preached to his disciples so that they could learn and apply that teaching to their life. It's important that as we read this sermon, and walk through the verses of this sermon that we realize that it is intended for the called, the disciple, the disciples and the believers. Most of the sermons I preach are not for the lost, are they? Most of the sermons that I preach are for the believer, for the disciple. They are for those that have been set apart for salvation and come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They've repented of their sins and they followed the Lord. However, my prayer is that every single week in this room, we have both committed disciples and we also have admirers, that we have fans. Because how in the world are the lost going to come to faith unless they hear the word of God preached and taught and lived out. So this sermon obviously is for the committed disciple, but it's also for the crowd. And so we need to realize that as we walk through this together. Notice when Jesus preaches this sermon, he does not say, live like this in order to be saved. He is telling the disciples, live like this because you are saved. There's a clear difference between the messages that Jesus preached in the early days of his ministry. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus preached the very message that John preached. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there was all obviously messages of salvation that Jesus preached. 
And then there was also messages of discipleship that he preached as well. Notice the second thing here. It is this. The Beatitudes are a package deal. You and I cannot pick and choose which of the Beatitudes we like and which ones we do not like. You and I can't say that I'm going to be a peacemaker today, but I'm going to avoid allowing myself to be put into a situation where I may be persecuted. Jesus said, blessed are those who are peacemakers. And he also said, blessed are those who are persecuted. You and I can't practice one without knowing the other is a real reality. Just like the fruits of the Spirit, are, um, all of those need to be part of our lives. So must the Beatitudes. The third thing here is behavior must flow out of belief. You and I must not only know what to believe, but we also must understand how we are to believe it. This is what the Sermon on the Mount does. It teaches us what the life of a disciple is to look like. If you take all of these passages that make up this sermon, you will have a perfect picture of what a disciple is to be. You and I have all been called to perfection, right? Jesus, later on in Matthew chapter 5, in fact, is going to tell his disciples. He's going to say this in Matthew five forty-eight: You therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to know what it looks like to live a perfect life? Read Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7, and we will have a good picture of what a perfect life is to look like. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You and I have been called to a life of perfection. Let's take God's word and apply it to our lives on a daily basis so that we can strive every single day to become more and more molded into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice our second point this morning. Our second point is this, the posture in which the Sermon on the Mount was delivered. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. So the, the crowds come to Jesus. And as the crowds come to him, notice what Jesus does. Jesus retreats away and goes up on the mountain and takes a seat. You would think that just because the model that we have today, that being more of a, um, a person when they assume the teaching role, they stand and everyone else sits down. That is not the case in, in the Bible. Um, during the days of Jesus, a person that taught with authority would take a seat and everyone else would actually stand up. One Sunday, we're going to try that. Um, I'm going to bring my recliner from home and I'm going to put that right here up on this stage and I'm going to open that, that leg rest and I'm just going to have a seat and all of you are going to stand up. We're going to see what that looks like. Um, I'm just kidding there, but, but that's what happened here. Jesus 
went up on the mountain, which is called the Mount of Beatitudes, and it overlooks the Sea of Galilee. He went up, probably found a a rock up there, and he sat down. And then his disciples came to him. John MacArthur in his commentary says this, A rabbi commonly sat down when he taught. If he spoke while standing or walking, what he said was considered to be informal or unofficial. But when he sat down, what he said was authoritative. And official. When Jesus sat down and delivered the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke from his divine chair with absolute authority as the sovereign king. So as we read this sermon, know that this sermon was not preached by some average Joe. This sermon was preached by the God of the universe. It was preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is applicable and must be applied to our lives on a daily basis. Notice point number three is this, the people to whom the sermon was delivered. The people Jesus taught were true learners. The people that gathered around Jesus, speaking of his disciples, those were true learners. I think that's something that we must wrestle with in our own lives. Are we true learners of the Word of God. If we are, how do we demonstrate that we are true learners? For the disciples, they witnessed Jesus assume the authoritative position of teaching by sitting. And Scripture says that when they see Jesus, they probably were down amongst the crowd. And I can just envision that they just Um, all of a sudden looked around and where's our teacher? Where is Jesus? And they look up and they see Jesus up on this mountain, which was really a hill. Um, And they look up and they see Jesus. And I can see them just immediately going to him. And scripture says his disciples came to him. In Jesus' day, people did not go to college. What they did is they latched on to a professional in the field that they were interested in, and they became their apprentice. If a person wanted to be a lawyer, they would find a lawyer, sit under that lawyer, and become their apprentice. If they wanted to be a blacksmith, they would find a blacksmith, and they would learn from that blacksmith as the apprentice. If they wanted to be a doctor, they didn't go to Baylor School of Medical. They went to people like Luke. And they sat under Luke and became his apprentice. What I love about the disciples is they get a second chance to become true learners of God's word. Before Jesus came, their professions were fishermen and tax collectors. We don't know all of their professions. But these are two fields in which scholars of God's word were not typically found in. But for these disciples, they are given a second chance to truly learn what it means to be a follower of Christ and a follower and uh, and a student of God's word. When they are called by Jesus, they no longer were about advancing their own personal agendas. They became children of the king, and they were given the opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. You may think that you are beyond the age of you's ability. 
like I'm sure these disciples probably thought of themselves. But I want you to know, it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are, God still has a place for you in his, in his mission field. You can still be used of the great king today regardless of your age. For these disciples, they thought that they were beyond being used of God. But guess what? The Lord Jesus came and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. How can we expect to become disciple makers if we ourselves are not willing to be made into disciples? God's word has been given to us. The Sermon on the Mount has been given to us. The, all 66 books of the Bible have been given to us so that we can learn from them and then apply them to our lives and equip other people. I love 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This word right here, it equips us. Why do we need to be equipped so that we can become teachers? And when we become teachers, you know what we become? We become disciple makers. Every single one of us in this room that have been called by God are disciples. And if you are a disciple, then you are a teacher. And if you are a teacher, you have been instructed according to God's word to equip other people. Notice the the fourth point this morning is this, the preacher and his message. In verse 2 we read, And he opened his mouth and he taught them. The Sermon on the Mount is unlike any other sermon that had ever been preached before. The opening word that Jesus utters in the Beatitudes is this word, blessed. In Greek, this word means happy. In Latin, this word means blessing or approval upon. Fundamentally, to be blessed is the idea of being approved. Jesus began teaching his disciples and telling them that this is the kind of life that God approves of. I don't know about you, but I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will always approve of the life that I live. Jesus makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that this is the kind of life that I approve of, that God, my Father, approves of. Anything outside of God's Word is not a life that God approves of. So let us be men and women that are found to be hungry and thirsty for the word of God so that we can become men and women that are found approved by God. I mean, that's fundamentally, that's why we come together week in and week out so that we can learn and be equipped so that we can be found approved by God. You and I know how to be found approved. We just read the scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. It, God's word, it is profitable for us. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction in this word, training in righteousness. God's word 
equips us to be trained in righteousness. What does it mean to be trained in righteousness? It means to be trained in the area of right living. You and I must be righteous people, people that are found to be living rightly before God. Um, one commentary breaks down the word righteousness like this. It says, in our society, people commonly say that everyone must determine what is right for oneself. Let me read that sentence again. In our society, people commonly say that everyone must determine what is right for oneself. Is that a true statement? Absolutely not. God's standard for living is, is, is what the truth is. It's not what the world tells us the standard is. However, Scripture offers a different standard. Indeed, the ultimate standard of rightness or righteousness is God himself. God's character reveals what is absolutely right. He is the measure of moral right and wrong. He is also the source of right living. It is important to understand that righteousness involves more than just determining whether or not one has lived up to the perfect standard that God sets. The fact is, no one has ever lived completely righteous on this earth except for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person that has ever walked the face of this earth has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, Scripture is abundantly clear in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Because of one sin that we have committed in our life, that one sin separates us from God. In fact, that one sin actually condemns us to a life of separation from God in a literal, in a real place called hell. What all of us deserve is hell. Okay, It's what we deserve. But the good news is this. The Bible goes on to say in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What we deserve, yes, is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But God's good gift to us, if we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of our sins, we are given the promise in God's word that we shall be saved. Romans 10, 13 says, Forever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you are here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to invite you in just a few minutes to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. That is to repent of your sins and to place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus this morning wants to be king over your life. You know that, right? You know that Jesus wants to be king over your life. What have you surrendered to Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered part of yourself to him? Three quarters of yourself to him? 99% of yourself to him? Or have you surrendered all of your life over to him? That's the only thing that Jesus wants from you. He doesn't want part of you or most of you. He wants all of you. One of my favorite hymns 
is I Surrender All, as I know it's probably one of your favorite hymns as well. This hymn is broken down, and it goes, All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Jesus All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And the final verse is this. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me, Savior, holy thine. May thy Holy Spirit fill me. May I know thy power divine. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. That's such a great hymn. It really is. Can you sing that or or quote that hymn and and say that, yes, I have done that in my life? When we sing that song, what we do is we tell the Lord that we want him to reign supremely over our lives. Does Jesus reign supremely over your life? As we walk through the Sermon on the Mount together over the next several weeks, what we are going to be studying, what we are going to be learning is how Jesus can reign supremely over our lives. If Jesus, if you, if you look at your life this morning and Jesus does not reign supremely over your life, then this morning I want to invite you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. That is to repent of your sins and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you have this promise in God's word that he will be the king over your life, that he will be your Lord, and that he will be your Savior. And you also have this promise that the gift of eternal life, where you will reign forever with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. So if you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, in just a moment I'm going to pray. And at the conclusion of this prayer, I'm going to say amen. And at that time, we invite any and everyone that needs to come and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to do that this morning. If you are here this morning and you have been visiting this church for a while and the Lord is leading you to make this your faith home, we invite you this morning to come and to be a part of this faith family. You may need to just come and kneel this morning and just ask the Lord, Father, there's some areas of my life that I have yet to yield to you. And so, Father, I ask that you will um, forgive me of my sins. And, Lord, I give over to you right now these particular areas of my life that you are not reigning supremely over right now. So you may need to come to this altar and kneel and pray that way. Or where you're sitting this morning, you may just need to pray that prayer that, that Lord, there's areas of my life that I've yet to surrender to you. And this morning, I, I surrender them over to you. Let's stand together this morning. And let's pray to God. Father God, we come before you now, Lord Jesus, just once again thanking you for the opportunity to come and 
to worship you. Father, for the opportunity to come and to open up your word today. Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, that if there are some here this morning that have yet to surrender their lives over to you, they've yet to place their faith in you, and they've yet to repent of their sins, Lord, I pray that this morning they'll make the greatest decision that they could ever make. Lord, I pray that if there's some here this morning that, that you are calling to be a part of this faith family, Lord Jesus, that today will be the day that they join this church. Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, that if there are areas of my life that I have yet to surrender to you, Father, Lord, make those abundantly clear to me as well as to all of us so that we can surrender those over to you this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you and ask you to move now. First, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.